Wondery Plus subscribers can binge new seasons of American Scandal early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. A listener note, this episode contains references to adult content and language and contains material that some might find offensive. It's March 31st, 1964, in New York City. Lenny Bruce paces backstage at the Café Al Gogo, a new club in Greenwich Village. He loosens his skinny black tie, then walks over to a scuffed-up mirror. His face looks puffy. His eyes are ringed with dark circles. But Bruce knows that, in this dimly-lit basement, no one's going to notice. Bruce runs a hand through his dark hair, then shrugs into his black jacket. Ella Solomon, the co-owner of Café Al Gogo, enters the room. Her dress kicks up dust. Hey, Len, you ready? Bruce turns and gives her his most charming grin. I'll be out there, Ella. Just give me a minute. That's what you said ten minutes ago. I know, I know. I'm just working through the opening bit. I was thinking of going with Jackie Kennedy. You like the Jackie bit? God forgive me, but yes, I do. Good, because it's one of the last safe bits I've got left. How on earth can that joke be safe? Her husband got killed four months ago. Well, I haven't been arrested yet, so it's safe in my book. Safety first. That's my motto. (laughs) What have you done with the real Lenny Bruce? I'm serious, Ella. Your boy needs a break. My low-life buddies tell me that I'll get used to the handcuffs, the jail cells, the lawyer fees. But guess what, Ella? You never get used to them. Well, I'm tired of waiting. You've got a show to do. Yes, Mother. Bruce follows Solomon down a long, narrow hallway. They reach the stage where Ella's husband, Howard Solomon, is stalling the crowd. Bruce stops in the wing, gives Howard an impish wave. Howard rolls his eyes and pulls the microphone close. And now the moment you've all waited for, ladies and gentlemen, the great Lenny Bruce. Bruce takes the stage, clasping Howard warmly on the shoulder. Solomon then walks off stage and stands next to his wife. Bruce peers out at the packed house. It's full of beatniks, burnouts, and hipsters. His kind of people. He adjusts the mic. Let's talk about Jackie Kennedy. You guys see that photo in Time Magazine? She's climbing out of the backseat of the Lincoln after John gets shot. There's his car right behind them filled with Secret Service. Jackie jumps out of the Lincoln and into the Secret Service car. Well, that makes sense. Definitely makes sense. But here's the thing. Photo caption says that she's bravely jumping into the Secret Service car to help lead the agents into the Lincoln. That's bull. That's a dirty lie. Give me a break. Jackie Kennedy wasn't brave. She was just hauling to save her own ass. (laughs) Bruce leans back and smiles. He's 15 years into his career, but he can still get a crowd going. Some people in the audience clasp their hands over their mouths, and some have tears streaming down their faces. Bruce is paid to perform, but that's not why he does it. The gasps of shock and laughter, that look on a person's face when they're shoved out of their comfort zone, Those are the true rewards. Bruce scans the crowd, soaking up the reaction. And then he zeroes in on one man, a few tables back. He's got a thin, dark mustache and hasn't taken off his long overcoat. Bruce narrows his eyes. The man sits alone, rapidly writing on a small notepad. Bruce feels himself getting tense, because he knows there are only two kinds of audience members who would take notes. Aspiring comedians and cops. He has a feeling that the man with the mustache was no aspiring comic. Bruce swallows hard, his heart pounding. 
Lately, the police have been cracking down on his act, and he can't afford more legal trouble. Certainly not another night in jail. He knows that a cautious man would come up with an excuse and just end the show right now. But Lenny Bruce is not a cautious man. He grabs the mic and launches into his next bit. And it's outrageous. American Scandal is sponsored by Audible. A room locked from the inside. A dead body, but no signs of injury or struggle. The deceased, a devoted family man, successful industrialist, and generous philanthropist. Everyone around him seemingly innocent, but hiding a secret past. In four sentences, I've grabbed your attention. And this is the power of classic mysteries and thrillers from Audible. Like Esquire Magazine's number one best mystery novel of all time, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. As an Audible member, you can choose one title every month to keep forever from the entire catalog of classics, bestsellers, new releases, and Audible originals, ready for listening whenever, wherever on the Audible app. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. That's audible.com slash AS or text AS to 500-500. Dell TechFest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time only, save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13 Plus, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Scandal. Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Sarah Silverman, Chris Rock. These are just a few of the stand-up comedians who have found fame with vulgar and unflinching comedy. They performed without fear, safe with the knowledge that their material was considered free speech in America, that even their raunchiest jokes fell under the protection of the First Amendment. But this wasn't always the case. Just decades ago, it was illegal to tell boundary-pushing jokes in public. Those who did could be found guilty of obscenity a crime that could be punished with steep fines and imprisonment. It wasn't until the 1950s that Lenny Bruce rose to prominence as a comedian and challenged the nation's obscenity laws. He was brilliant, uncompromising, outspoken, on stage and off. In his acts, he skewered the norms of mainstream society. He railed against hypocrisy, and his comedy took a hard look at religion, race, politics, sex, and more. Bruce quickly became a countercultural legend, but he also became a target for those in power who saw his dissenting views as a threat. Bruce clashed frequently with law enforcement throughout his career, but his decisive legal battle began in 1964 in New York City. It was a bitter fight, one that would test just how far the authorities would go in order to silence a performer who spoke out and criticized conventional morality. It was a trial that would not only change comedy, but redefine free speech in America. This is episode one, the Obscenity Circus. It's April 18th, 1949 in New York City. 
Inside the CBS studio building, stage lights illuminate the set of Arthur Godfrey's talent show. Lenny Bruce waits in the wings, clutching a stack of homemade cue cards. His right hand trembles. For months, he's worked on these jokes, and he can't afford to flub a single word. This is the number one late-night variety show in the country. It's television, the big time, and it could make his career. So Bruce tries to relax. He thinks he could use a drink. His armpits are moist. His bow tie feels like it's choking him. And that cream they use to slick down his hair, it's so stiff now he feels like he's wearing a helmet. He takes a breath and a break from his note cards. And he watches Godfrey deliver an opening monologue with his trademark folksy charm. The 45-year-old showbiz veteran makes it look so easy. Bruce just turned 24. He wonders if he'll ever be as good or as popular. Bruce drops one of his cue cards. He curses, but then glances nervously toward the nearby crew members. A makeup girl approaches and starts powdering his face, but also, with a smile, warns him that he better not use language like that when he's on stage. Just then, a crewman with a clipboard walks over and tells Bruce that he's up. Bruce strides on stage with all the confidence he can muster. He hears a creak as a spotlight swivels overhead, following him to the microphone. He takes a deep breath looks out at the hundreds of people waiting in the audience. For a split second, he hesitates. He's worked so hard to get to this moment, refining his jokes, touring tiny clubs in the middle of nowhere, getting paid pennies. But now that he's finally here, something feels wrong. He can't quite put his finger on it. So when the audience coughs, Bruce realizes he better get started. He does an impression of James Cagney crying, you dirty rat. It's a perfect imitation. Next, he does a bit about Audrey Hepburn on a date with Gregory Peck and pitches his voice at just the right octave. He makes a few more good-natured wisecracks about movie stars in general, and then, before he knows it, his time is up. He's performed his entire routine perfectly, and the studio audience cheers. It's at that moment he realizes what's bothering him. This should be the happiest moment of his life, but deep down, he knows how much better his performance would be if he could do things his way. The way he does it sitting at the bar with his friends. That's the real Lenny Bruce. The Lenny Bruce who makes cracks about the time Gregory Peck cheated on his wife. Bruce acknowledges the applause. Then he heads off stage, his smile fading. If he's going to be an honest-to-God comic and not some phony, he needs to do things differently. He'll have to hone his craft in front of his kind of people, not these tourists and suburbanites. Bruce has heard about the after-hours clubs and strip joints where they don't tell you what to say or how to say it. He thinks that's where he truly belongs, where he can be free. On his way to the exit door, he rips off his bow tie and chucks it in the trash. It's early 1957 in Los Angeles, California. Lenny Bruce reclines on the black leather sofa in his living room. He presses a damp washcloth over his eyes and breathes slowly. He's still coming down from all the booze and pills he swallowed the night before. Recovery isn't as easy as it used to be, now that Bruce is in his 30s. The setting sun glows through the windows, lighting the room in shades of pink and gold. Bruce loves this house. L.A. has a special place in his heart, too. It was here that he learned to work the burlesque scene. Surrounded by gyrating strippers, he developed new material that was uncensored and edgy, a far cry from the material he performed eight years ago on Arthur Godfrey's show. In that time, he developed a following and even made some money from his work. But even a well-stocked bank account can't solve a bad hangover. As he reclines on the sofa, suddenly the washcloth is pulled from his eyes. He groans in protest. 
His wife drops down on the couch and tells him to get up. Her name is Honey, and Lenny met her at a strip club where she was working as a dancer. Even though Lenny's hungover, he still thinks she's got the prettiest smile he's ever seen. Honey reminds him that it's coming up on nighttime, and she asks, doesn't he have a show in a couple of hours? Lenny sits up and wipes his mouth. His head throbs and his skin feels sticky. He leans in to sneak a kiss, but when Honey catches a whiff of his breath, she bats him away. Lenny pleads with her. I'm a foul-mouthed comedian. I don't brush my teeth, he says. Rather than laughing, Honey's face hardens. And all at once, Lenny knows what she's going to say. Honey reminds him that he needs to be careful. He needs to clean up his act. Even if he's telling jokes at a strip club, cops come around even there, and they could bust him. Lenny frowns. He rises and says he's not worried about the cops. As he heads toward the bathroom, Honey grabs his arm, though, and stops him. She says she's serious. He should be worried. The wrong joke in the wrong place, it'll get him arrested. Lenny counters and says his act isn't obscene. He talks the way people talk in real life, and there's nothing wrong with that. Honey says she understands, but the police will not. She's worried he's defying them too openly, and they'll go out of their way to make an example of him. So Lenny pauses. Then he promises that in the end, he's going to win the fight. Honey shakes her head. She tells him that depends on how he defines winning. It's April 1959, and Lenny Bruce waits patiently backstage at New York's Hudson Theater. This is the home of the Steve Allen Show. Bruce likes Allen. He wears hip, black-rimmed glasses like Buddy Holly, and he isn't afraid to be a little vulgar. In fact, Steve Allen is one of Bruce's biggest mainstream supporters. An article came out in Time magazine calling Bruce the high priest of sick comedy, and still Allen fought to keep Bruce on the show. As he waits to go on, Bruce smiles to himself. They call him sick because he speaks his mind, because he's suspicious of the mainstream, hypocritical, suburban world of America. But the way he sees it, that's exactly what makes him healthy. On stage, Alan begins his introduction. He tells the audience that once a month, they book a comedian who's going to offend everybody. And tonight, they have the most shocking comedian of all. He calls out Lenny Bruce's name. And as the house band fires up a song, Bruce walks on stage. The crowd roars. Bruce begins with a few of his best clean jokes. He tells the audience he first started smoking Marlboros at six years old and makes fun of kids who sniff glue. He's having fun, but there's something important he wants to address. He wants people to know that there's more to him than four-letter words. He has a reputation as being controversial and irreverent, but, he says, I'll tell you something. There are definitely things that offend me. Segregation offends me. Programs that exploit societal problems under the guise of helping them, that offends me. Alan nods thoughtfully, and the audience applauds. Bruce feels that he's made his point. People should challenge intolerance and hypocrisy however they can. Bruce's weapon of choice is comedy. But he also knows that the other side, the establishment, they have weapons too. As he wraps up his set and heads off stage, Bruce begins to wonder, was Honey right? How badly has he offended the people in power? And if he has, when are they going to strike back? It's October 4th, 1961. In San Francisco, Lenny Bruce stands on stage in a cramped club known as the Jazz Workshop. He pauses in the middle of his set and sways slightly. He's lost his train of thought again. Then he remembers and jumps back into the material. He wants to talk about a recent drug bust. Bruce offers a melancholy smile. This isn't made-up material. 
He was arrested in Philadelphia the previous month, caught with methamphetamine, methadone, and a few syringes. He tells the audience it was a big misunderstanding that his doctors prescribed the drugs. Bruce sighs. The truth is he has needed medication lately, a lot of it. He's had a rough few years. He and Honey divorced, one, because he was having affairs, and two, because he was doing too many drugs. He's had his share of troubles recently, no need to invite more. So tonight, Bruce sticks to the basics. He riffs on sex and the male body, nothing too crazy. When he's done, the audience applause, and he heads back towards his dressing room. Bruce turns a corner and stops dead in his tracks. Two brawny police officers stand in the hallway. Art Auerbach, the owner of the jazz workshop, turns to Bruce and sputters. I'm sorry, Lenny, they, they were watching your act. They say it was obscene. We've got to take you to jail. Bruce glares at the cops. Hold on, you guys can't just come in here and do this. One of the officers grabs him firmly under the elbow. Yes, we can, and you're coming with us. Bruce wants to fight back, but knows he won't win. Not when he's still high from two joints he smoked before the show. Outside, Bruce is led toward a police call box across the street. He turns to the arresting officer. What's your name, anyway? James Ryan, San Francisco Police Department. We're going to call the sergeant so I can tell him you've been apprehended. Apprehended for what? For an offensive, illegal act. I don't understand how you can use that word in public and think it's okay. A mischievous grin spreads across Bruce's face. What word would that be? You know the word. You scared to say it out loud? No. Go ahead, give it a try. It'll make you feel dangerous. Ryan shoves Bruce. What makes you think you can get away talking the way you do? I'm not trying to get away with anything. We should get all these so-called bad words out in the open. Really break them down, you know? No, I don't know. What about the word clap? Does clap bother you? Ryan thinks it over as they arrive at the call box. No, clap isn't bad. Bruce can't help himself. Now, if you get the clap from a... Ryan shoves Bruce in disgust before he can finish the joke. And he grabs the call box handset. Bruce trips and falls to the ground. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Hello, this is Officer Ryan. I'm outside the jazz workshop. Give me three squad cars and a paddy wagon right now, please. Bruce is on the ground, giggling. And Ryan reaches out and pulls him to his feet. Lenny Bruce, you are in violation of the Municipal Police Code, Sections 176 and 205. Bruce stops laughing and catches his breath. He suddenly realizes there's nothing funny about a night in jail. And he realizes he wishes his ex-wife were here to see him. The thing she was so afraid of has finally come to pass. Bruce has been arrested for obscenity, and if this cop's attitude is any indication, all that lies ahead are problems. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. 
When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. It's March 31st, 1964. Inspector Herbert Rue is walking through the New York District Attorney's Office. Rue is an olive-skinned Frenchman with a thin, dark mustache. As he moves through the office, he passes rows of wooden desks and hears ringing phones and clacking typewriters. Rue heads straight for the corner office belonging to District Attorney Frank Hogan. Hogan's door is wide open. Upon seeing Rue, the lean, graying District Attorney rises to shake his hand. Rue hangs his tan overcoat on the coat rack and takes a seat. Hogan launches into it. Tonight, Lenny Bruce is performing at the Café Ogogo. Rue will need to go to the club and carefully watch the comedian without being noticed. It's the perfect mission for Rue, who used to work for the CIA. Rue says he's happy to do as ordered. He likes using his wit to bring criminals to justice. But he's at a loss. The name Lenny Bruce doesn't ring a bell. He asks Hogan, why is he following a comedian? Hogan leans forward, his expression suddenly very serious. Bruce, he says, is performing vulgar comedy all over the country. He's a known drug addict and provocateur. He's already been arrested on obscenity charges. Rue scribbles the details in his notepad as Hogan continues, explaining that Bruce's first arrest was in San Francisco, but the comedian refused to change his act. He kept breaking law over and over, so he was arrested in L.A. and then Chicago, So far, Hogan says, Bruce has been able to act with impunity. The charges in San Francisco were dismissed. He was convicted in Chicago and sentenced to a year in jail, but he's currently free on bail as he appeals. The case in L.A. hasn't even begun. So until someone nails him, he'll continue to act like he's above the law. He'll do whatever he wants and keep performing obscene material. Rue nods. He understands. It's his job to catch this criminal in the act. With his intelligence gathering, he can help put Bruce away for good. Rue snaps shut his notepad. He's antsy and ready to hear this obscene comedian for himself. Because after he does, he'll be able to show Hogan what a skilled undercover investigator he really is. Later that night, Inspector Rue sits at the Café Ogogo, surveying his surroundings. Masks and pink globes hang from the ceiling. The air is thick with marijuana smoke. It's well past 11 p.m., but the crowds are still growing. Beatnik girls in black berets, unshaven guys in beanies, men and women of all races all here to see Lenny Bruce. But when Bruce finally takes the stage, he's not the trim, stylish man that Rue saw in the photographs. This Bruce is a little heavy in the midsection, and he looks very tired. He launches into a routine that mocks Jackie Kennedy. Rue raises his eyebrow while the people around him laugh. Rue notes that the material is rude, but not too extreme, and it's clear that the crowd finds Bruce's performance quite thrilling. Bruce moves on from Kennedy, and that's when the dirty material begins. He references enemas, orgasms, masturbation. Rue actually finds Bruce's routine quite funny. Not that he would share that opinion widely, especially not with the arresting officer that he's certain Hogan will now send. 
It's mid-April 1964 in New York City. Lenny Bruce is sprawled on the living room rug in his friend Nat Hentoff's apartment. Bruce looks up at Hentoff, who sits a few feet away on a moss-green couch. Hentoff is a young staff writer at The Village Voice. He has a thick beard and glasses, and he's one of Bruce's oldest allies. He's also a jazz connoisseur, and Bruce loves digging through Hentoff's record collection. That's what he's doing when Hentoff pulls off a shoe and throws it across the room. Hey, Lenny, stop looking at the damn records and pay attention, please. I'm trying to get you out of this mess. I'm tired, okay? My chest is killing me. Look, I know you're down, man. This is a very depressing situation. But they're not fooling around arresting you like that at the Cafe Agogo. New York City's finest, but look, you can't win if you don't fight. Bruce scoots closer to the couch. Nat, I'm ready to fight, okay? I want to win this. It was one thing when it was just me getting arrested, but arresting Howard and Ella for booking me, that's that's going way too far. It's got to stop. We got to beat the system once and for all. I hear you, Lenny, but if you want to beat them for good, you're going to need a lawyer, the best lawyer. Yeah, well, who's the best lawyer? Ephraim London. I've written about a few obscenity trials, and he's probably the best First Amendment lawyer around. The guys argue more than 200 obscenity cases. I'm pretty sure he's got a copy of the Constitution on his bedside table. But I need him right away. You don't actually think I can get him. There's one way to find out. Hentoff rummages through a folder of newspaper clippings and index cards, sliding one of them across the coffee table. Bruce grabs it and heads to the kitchen phone. Hello, Ephraim London speaking. Wow, you sound just like I picture Abraham Lincoln sounding. You know that? Oh, this is Lenny Bruce, by the way. You heard of me? Yes, Mr. Bruce, I've heard of you. Please call me tomorrow at my office. Right now... No, wait. Uh, sir, please don't hang up. I need your help, and I need it now. I don't know that I'm the one to help you, Mr. Bruce. I'll be very blunt. Your style of comedy doesn't amuse me. Hey, yeah, I get it. I'm not for everyone, clearly. But that's not the issue. And what is the issue to you, sir? The issue is the city of New York trying to take away my First Amendment rights. My buddy Nat says you're the best free speech defender in America. Mr. London, would you agree, even if you don't like my material, that I have a right to perform it? Yes, I suppose I agree with that. Then what do you say? Take my case. London pauses, and as Bruce waits, a heavy knot forms in his stomach. It suddenly feels like everything rides on this moment. With a good lawyer, he could stay free. He could keep performing, even change the way this country thinks about free speech. This could be big. Mr. Bruce, I will take the case, but on one condition. Fantastic, but uh, yeah, of course, what is it? You follow my lead and my advice at every juncture of this trial. Bruce agrees, and as he hangs up, a giant smile spreads across his face. He has a lawyer, a great one. And now the real fight is set to begin. It's April 13, 1964. Assistant District Attorney Richard Q enters the glass and granite towers that are home to the New York Criminal Courthouse. Q is a tall, broad-shouldered man with jet black hair and a camera-ready smile. He takes pride in his ability to win any case he's told to prosecute, and he's especially eager to win this one. Q knows he wasn't Frank Hogan's first choice to lead the prosecution. He only got the job because Hogan's go-to guy was a little too fond of Bruce's jokes. What anyone sees in such a nauseating act, Q doesn't understand. But he's grateful for this chance to impress Hogan. If he wins this trial and puts Lenny Bruce in prison, he'll be the DA's top choice for years to come. Inside the courtroom, Q nods respectfully to the panel of judges, then glances at the defense. A middle-aged couple sits together, looking frightened. 
Those must be the club's owners, Howard and Ella Solomon. Next to them is Lenny Bruce. Bruce wears tight black pants, polished boots, and a black jacket buttoned up to the neck. In Q's estimation, the comedian is clearly on drugs. Next to Bruce is Ephraim London, who's lanky and sits in a plain, dark suit. Q respects London. He's a formidable attorney. But he wonders if London grasps that this case is a lost cause. The lead judge bangs his gavel, and the pretrial hearing begins. The judge says they'll start with the matter of the reel-to-reel tapes. Bruce taped his act at the Café Ogogo, a fact he let slip during an interview with the Village Voice. Q tells the court that Bruce is legally obligated to turn over the tapes as evidence. London says that this is out of the question. The tapes are Bruce's personal property. Forcing him to turn them over would be a violation of his constitutional rights. But Q is well prepared for this argument. He responds that, in fact, the tapes are not Bruce's property. Bruce recorded them in the Café Ogogo. That's an incorporated establishment, and therefore the tapes belong to a corporation, not an individual. And so they should be entered as evidence. The lead judge agrees with Q, and he orders the defense to hand over the tapes. Q watches Bruce's face crumple. He allows himself a quick moment of satisfaction. It's not yet even 10 a.m., and already Q has scored his first major victory in the People v. Bruce. Two days later in court, on April 15th, Ephraim London leans over the defense table to confer with Lenny Bruce. Bruce is upset that the prosecution has his tapes. What's the plan, London man, he asks. London grimaces in irritation. He does not appreciate Bruce's nicknames or his attempts at humor. London takes a moment to straighten his jacket and collect himself. He finds Bruce to be sloppy and prone to say whatever pops into his head. So London does not think much of Bruce the man. But he does think highly of the First Amendment and the freedom of speech. It's why he agreed to take the case. London believes that free speech must be defended and that obscenity law is ludicrous. No one deserves to be persecuted under obscenity law, not even Bruce. So rapidly, London lays out their strategy. Yes, Q has the tapes, but that shouldn't matter, he tells Bruce. He's going to try and get this case dismissed today. According to legal precedent, no performance can be considered obscene if it contains redeeming social value. Bruce lights up, and he agrees with London. Bruce says that, yes, his work does have redeeming social value. That's what he's been saying all along. Bruce claps London on the shoulder, and the panel of judges calls upon them. It's time for London to formally make the case for dismissal. For the next 30 minutes, London argues passionately against the trial. He cites the legal precedents and declares the trial to be simply unconstitutional. Bruce is impressed. Across the room, Q even furrows his brow with concern. But the lead judge, Frederick Strong, remains stone-faced. London watches with a sinking feeling as Strong delivers his opinion. He says that the court will not decide upon the constitutionality of the obscenity law. That must be done in a higher court. And so the trial of Lenny Bruce will continue. London sits down quietly. He's disappointed, and he's upset. He expected more of Strong, being a judge in the most diverse, most cosmopolitan city in America. In London's opinion, Strong is standing in the way of cultural progress. Yet this decision has only deepened London's resolve. He is in this trial for the long haul. London turns to Bruce and starts to tell him not to lose heart. But Bruce is slumped down in his seat, his head in his palms. He moans and says he knows it. He's going to jail. He puts a hand to his chest and coughs. 
The next morning, Bruce wakes up in his room at the Marlton Hotel in downtown Manhattan. It's just before dawn, and he's choking in the dark. He struggles to sit up, but collapses back onto the sheets. He thrashes in pain. It feels like a flaming spike is being hammered through the center of his chest. Terrified, Bruce fumbles for the phone on the nightstand. He picks it up, dials the operator, and gasping for air, begs for an ambulance. Moments later, he can hear approaching sirens as he begins to lose consciousness. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. It's three in the afternoon in Los Angeles in April of 1964. Lenny Bruce is in his master bedroom, propped up in his king-size bed. The blinds are closed. That prevents glare on the TV set he had wheeled in. There's little else to do these days but watch TV and wait for his body to heal. The doctors told him he's lucky to be alive. What happened in New York was an acute attack of pleurisy, a condition that causes painful swelling of the chest cavity. Thankfully, the ambulance reached him in time. Surgeons operated on Bruce for five hours, and in the end, they removed a rib and drained his chest of fluid. It was painful and terrifying, but there was a silver lining. The New York trial was postponed and won't resume until Bruce recovers. So he's been taking his sweet time recovering. Bruce mutes the TV and picks up a notebook and pen from the bedside table. He's been meaning to write to his L.A. defense attorney, Stanley Ermis. Not long after Bruce's operation, Ermis called with wonderful news. He succeeded in getting the L.A. obscenity charges dismissed. Smiling, Bruce composes a note thanking Ermis for his work. Dear Stanley, it begins, Thanks to you, I'm now spoiled. Thanks to you, I can laugh at sheriff's cars as they drive past. Bruce leans back against his pillows and turns up the volume on the TV. He feels like he's finally able to rest easy for the first time in years. It's June 1964, two months later. Helen Weaver, a New York writer and translator, sits cross-legged on the floor of Allen Ginsberg's tiny apartment. Mountains of books and papers are stacked on every visible surface. It's an absolute mess, but there's no place she'd rather be. Weaver feels that Lenny Bruce needs her help. She's admired the comedian for a long time and believes that he's a creative visionary. But Bruce is battling ongoing court cases in New York and Chicago. And though his recent health scare bought him a little time in Manhattan, he's hardly out of the woods. Weaver tucks her dark brown hair behind her ears and prepares to make another phone call. She and Ginsburg have been working the phones for days now, and she knows she has to keep reaching out to more people. Weaver picks up the receiver. Hello, Taylor residence. Hello, this is Helen Weaver. I have a call scheduled with Mrs. Taylor. One moment, please. This is Elizabeth Taylor. Hello, Mrs. Taylor. This is Helen Weaver. I'm a friend of Alan Ginsberg's, and he asked me to call you. Are you aware of Lenny Bruce's legal situation? Oh, yes, I've heard. Isn't it just awful? Yes, it's terrible and absurd. That's why Alan and I are putting together a petition, formally protesting the persecution of Lenny Bruce. 
It'll go out in newspapers across the country. We're asking prominent people like yourself to join us. Bob Dylan has already signed. So has Norman Mailer and James Baldwin. Can I add your name as well? Weaver sees Ginsburg turn around in the kitchen, his expression hopeful. Oh, I, I don't know. Between you and me, I like Lenny, but uh, you have to admit his material is very racy. Oh, I understand, Mrs. Taylor, but America's creative community can't sit by while one of our own is unjustly attacked. By fighting for Lenny Bruce now, we're fighting for the freedom of all artists. After a moment, Taylor responds. You're right. I'm on board. Thank you so much, Mrs. Taylor. Triumphant, Weaver adds a checkmark next to Elizabeth Taylor's name. Ginsburg returns from the kitchen, carrying two steaming mugs of tea. He congratulates her and notes that right now they have nearly 100 supporters. They should finish up their calls for the night and send their petition to papers in the morning. Weaver nods and then picks up the phone again. It's June 15, 1964, and a gloomy day in Los Angeles. Lenny Bruce walks across the living room of his Hollywood Hills home, his head pounding from another wild night. He stumbles over a suitcase and kicks it angrily. The phone rings and he picks it up. It's his friend Dick Schapp calling to apologize. He hasn't checked in since the surgery and wants to know how Bruce is doing. Bruce gives him the quick answer. He's terrible. His chest is healed, but everything else in his life has fallen apart. Two months ago, he was on top of the world. He thought his legal troubles were over. Apparently, it doesn't mean anything, though, that his L.A. case was dismissed. The city attorney appealed the decision, and that means Bruce will have to fight the charges all over again from square one. Plus, he's about to be late for his flight to New York, where his trial starts there tomorrow. But Schaap says he's got something that will cheer Bruce up. He's just read something in the New York Times, a petition demanding that Bruce be allowed to perform free from censorship or harassment. It's signed by 100 of the most famous people in the world. Bruce finds his darkest sunglasses and puts them on. Hooray for Hollywood, he says, his voice a deep monotone. But Schaap continues to gush over the petition. They're calling Bruce a social satirist, comparing him to Mark Twain and Jonathan Swift. But Bruce is not impressed. He calls the petition stupid and claims that those who signed it are just trying to look hip. He doesn't want to be their symbol. He just wants to beat these court cases, get back on the road, and make some more money. Bruce can tell Schaap sounds deflated, and he tells his friend not to worry. He's got a good case, and he's going to prove in court that he's protected by the First Amendment. It's June 17, 1964, in New York City. Lenny Bruce and his lawyer, Ephraim London, walk toward the massive, looming criminal courts building. Bruce is sweating under his black jacket and feels a slight stab of pain in his chest. He ignores the spectators that line the outside of the building and follows London to courtroom 535. It's day two of Bruce's New York obscenity trial. Bruce takes a seat at the defense table and scans the room. Behind the judges are golden letters stretching from floor to ceiling. They read, In God We Trust. Bruce smirks. Right now, he needs a cigarette a lot more than he ever needed God. He turns around and waves to the audience behind him. There are a random smattering of friends, foes, media, and curious onlookers. And they all look like they're hoping for a little free entertainment. Bruce sighs. He can't believe he has to sit in this miserable room five days a week for the next several months. It's better than jail, but not by much. At the witness stand, patrolman William O'Neill sits in full uniform. 
It was O'Neill who arrested Bruce in the Solomons at Café Algogo in New York, the show that Inspector Rue watched while undercover. Now he's testifying for the assistant DA, Richard Q. Q paces at the front of the courtroom, asking O'Neill questions about the night of the arrest. The patrolman responds, his tone cooperative and eager to please. He tells the judges that the Solomons didn't make any attempt to stop Bruce from performing his obscene material. When they heard Bruce's act in their club, they should have dialed the police immediately and reported the comedian. Bruce snorts. He's told a lot of ridiculous jokes in his lifetime, but none of them were as ridiculous as this argument. He can't believe that Q would put this idiot on the stand. Bruce looks at the three judges in the front of the courtroom. They remind him of stone-faced gargoyles on the ledge of some cathedral. He wishes a jury was deciding his trial. Real people would understand the need to speak your mind and tell it like it is. But this is a New York misdemeanor trial, and Bruce is stuck with an uptight panel of judges. He watches in disbelief as they listen to O'Neill's testimony. They nod soberly at one another as if they're buying O'Neill's argument. Bruce feels the color drain from his face because if the judges are buying this argument, then he and the Solomons are going to jail. All because he dared to question the establishment and slaughter its sacred cows in public. He can't believe that he and Ella and Howard could lose their livelihoods and their freedom. Part of him wishes he could just run out of the courtroom but there's no outrunning the forces aligned against Bruce. He has no choice but to stick it out and fight. Next on American Scandal, Lenny Bruce continues his desperate quest for justice and grows increasingly frustrated with New York's legal system. As the judges near their verdict, the comedian's downward spiral of drugs and self-destruction picks up speed. From Wondery, this is American Scandal. Just a quick note about our reenactments. We can't always know exactly what was said, but everything in our show is based on historical research. American Scandal is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. This episode is written by Hannibal Diaz. Edited by Christina Malsberger. Produced by Gabe Riven. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Jenny Lauer-Beckman, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice. Only on Freebie. 